CPA compliance report is sponsored by and is preparing solutions to the one-stop shop for all compliance-related services. Today I have back with me Ben Lachlan. Ben is a Director of Research and Development at Biogen and an Operational Specialist in the pharmaceutical and healthcare spaces. Today Ben and I began a three-part podcast series where we talk about the risk management process. Today we talk about forecasting. It is a very important yet often overlooked part of your risk management process. We couple this with a series of blog posts I wrote on this subject uh, last month, so I hope you will enjoy it, and I hope you'll find it uh, useful in your own risk management process going forward. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and welcome to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Today, I'm joined by Ben Lockwin, Director of Global R&D at Biogen and an operational strategist in the pharma and healthcare industry. Uh, I recently visited with Ben, uh, which led to a week-long blog series on risk and compliance. And today, we are going to follow this up with a series of podcasts uh, on those uh, topics. Today, we're going to specifically talk about forecasting. So, Ben, uh, welcome. Thanks, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here, and it's always great to speak with you and your listeners. So, Ben, over the past, uh, I guess, nine months now, we've had some forecasts that, uh, to say, have gone awry might really belittle or belie the situation, and I'm specifically talking about uh, the polls around Brexit, uh, polling around the U.S. presidential elections, 538's predictions around the presidential elections, and even bringing it up into February of 2017. Uh, with eight minutes to go in the Super Bowl, Atlanta had a 99.7% chance of winning the Super Bowl, uh, as predicted by ESPN. So uh, people are really questioning forecasting. And so I wanted to see if maybe we could visit on this podcast about what forecasting is, how uh, people should look at it as a process, and what mistakes that uh, you've observed, both in uh, the three examples I articulated, but also in uh, in your uh, sphere of uh, healthcare and pharmaceutical industry? So, with that somewhat long-winded introduction, um, what what are your thoughts on what is forecasting? Yeah, you know, it's it's really a simple question to ask, and as you've really tried to elucidate and clarify in, in some of your recent um, writing pieces, it uh, when you start scratching the surface, it becomes very much a, a complex nut. Um, it's it's almost as though, as you start peeling back the layers of the proverbial onion, it gets more and more complicated. Um, and Fortunately or unfortunately, what that makes you start to think of as you go down layer by layer is, am I asking too many questions? Am I getting so deep in the weeds that this isn't actually um, appreciably influencing in a positive way what I'm doing for the business, for the organization, for the public? And am I really just getting mired in detail that really has no effect? But you know, with those three examples that you mentioned, specifically Brexit, um, you know, you and I had spoken at length, and I wrote a piece last summer about um, the, the years zero AB, which I termed after Brexit, and how the UK had forecasted that essentially uh, doom and gloom was coming. It was it was going to be financial Armageddon, not only for the UK and Europe specifically, but also for worldwide markets. And um, Osborne, who was the chief finance minister, 
you know, he really uh, tried to put the fear of God into the entire populace and, and the world, if he could, to try to say that it was the absolute worst thing that could happen. And, you know, of course, as with most dire forecasts or, or most overly optimistic forecasts, the truth uh, tends to fall a little bit more into the central tendency of a distribution. It, it certainly wasn't as dire as was thought. Um, you know, there are certainly far-reaching implications. If I think about healthcare and pharma, you know, what's happening with Brexit and what's going to happen next could be its own forecasting model. But, um, you know, what happens essentially is that for uh, medical devices, for pharmaceuticals that are uh, intended to be released to market, you know, what we see a lot of is that the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S. has to regulate those products. And also, for example, in the EU, they have their own analog of the FDA, the European Medicines Agency. And the EMA, as they're called, they do the same sort of review that the FDA does. And so, you know, the question becomes, does the EMA uh, still get to, to have oversight uh, on those drug products, medical devices that the MHRA would have done? And the MHRA is uh, specific to the UK in terms of medical regulation uh, and healthcare interventions. So, you know, there are a lot of questions still to be answered. But as far as the forecast, you know, it, it really has proven to be far less than, than accurate and optimum. And then the presidential election, as you mentioned, um, we all know in, in the United States and worldwide what happened with the presidential election. And similarly with the Super Bowl 51 outcome, where, as you mentioned, it, it was talked about that there was a 99.7% chance that, that uh, Atlanta was going to win. And that certainly wasn't the case. And when we look back, there was almost the same odds in favor of Hillary Clinton winning the U.S. presidential election until the 11th and a half hour uh, when that wasn't what happened at all. And I think, you know, all of these three things should I think they should shake our confidence in forecasting. Um, I think if we just say, well, these were each one off events, we have some pretty powerful one off events here, which um, don't necessarily tell us that forecasting is valueless, but they tell us that potentially we don't have all the information that we should have in order to make ourselves really confident in the models that we're creating. So certainly nobody would um, plan a long trip without checking a weather forecast, making sure they've packed raincoats or snow gear or things like that, because there certainly is value to knowing what may happen next, but you know, being over-reliant on a forecast, which could be uh, incredibly wrong, can put you in as bad or worse a situation than if you didn't heed it in the first place. And you know, interestingly, I was thinking about the um, the Donner Party, who uh, they had been trapped in the snow for several months in the course of um, a winter, and you know, most of the the, the Donner Party ended up dying um, of exposure. There was cannibalism that occurred with the group. And um, you know, a lot of that had to do with the fact that they were faced with, again, a very last minute decision of whether they should take their wagon train and go through a mountain pass, which is now um, eponymously called Donner Pass, or if they should try to wait it out. Um, you know, they had a, a wheel, I believe, on one of their stagecoach wagons that broke and they decided to try to fix the wheel. And the extra time that it took delayed them by about just one day. And when they started going through the pass, um, I believe it was in October, 
the, um, the Donner Pass in the mountains started getting snow and the snow basically didn't abate for several months. And so they get socked in. Now, of course, this was well before uh, any Doppler radar forecasting ability. So, you know, we don't see these sorts of events to that scale anymore, at least in the context of um, our, our ability to be able to predict weather or not get trapped in the weather. Um, you know, but it, it really does bring us, I think, back to the central point, which is forecasting is only as good as the information that we're plugging into the forecast. And as the eminent statistician George E.P. Box said, all models are wrong, some models are useful. <laughs> well, you said a couple of things that I wanted to uh, to follow up on, Ben. And, and the first one was when you started with uh, the Brexit and <clears throat> forecasting, particularly by George Osborne. Uh, and what struck me was when you were describing the, the dire forecasts put forward by um, Osborne, Really, don't we tend to see uh, in the real life a regression to the mean, uh, whether a uh, forecast is overly dire or overly optimistic? And, or maybe even is it just a function of uh, Newton's third law, um, which really drives forces um, or objects equal to the size of the force uh, back on the object so that the, there is a natural return or a natural stasis? Um, and I hate to use those overarching general laws of nature, but it almost seems that uh, that's sort of what we saw with the three examples that we both articulated. Yeah, you know, I think I, I think you're exactly right there. There's there's a, a tremendous tendency to not consider the central limit theorem and regression to the mean. And, you know, if we've got one-off forecasts, let's say, you know, we put all of our eggs in one basket and we essentially have what amounts to one big data point. Over time, if you ran a similar sort of experiment thousands of times in repetition, what you would end up having is some distribution of points which you know, would tend to follow a Gaussian or bell curve. And so if that first big data point that you have is in one of the two tails, the left side or the right side, you know, you're, you're again trying to be really confident in a value that if you had more information over longer periods of time would show you that, well, this data point actually isn't going to pile up in the, in the center of the distribution. This is really kind of an outlier, and maybe I shouldn't uh, go out into the town yelling the sky is falling because I don't have enough information yet. I think, you know, one of the challenges there, though, is science has taken a hit in the past, well, I would say five, ten years. Um, 20 years. If I think back, Andrew Wakefield wrote a paper in the UK, um, and it was about vaccines being linked to autism. Now, I wanted to make clear that this paper has been widely discredited. Uh, Andrew Wakefield has been um, essentially disbarred. He had his medical license revoked in the UK, um, and he's now much maligned and reviled. But, um, you know, what he did do was create kind of this uh, subculture groundswell of people who are called the anti-vaxxers. These are people who want to challenge, be iconoclasts against the notions of science about good medical practice. And so, you know, they're, they're trying to look for holistic cures. Uh, they're trying to look for treatments that don't involve vaccination, uh, mainstream conventional medical care. And it puts a lot of people at risk. And, you know, as I, as I think about this example, as people start to eschew science more and more, 
Um, you know, you've got these factions who are refusing to give their children the measles, mumps, and rubella, the MMR vaccine. And, um, you know, it really puts a lot of the population at risk. And so I think one of the problems that comes up is science um, shouldn't be driven by policy. Science is not about democracy. Um, you know, there was a paraphrase by Richard Feynman, the Nobel laureate, um, essentially to that to that context that there, there's nothing democratic about science. It's about what's right and what isn't true. Um, and you can essentially determine by experimentation what's working and what isn't working. And so, you know, the, the more that science hedges and for example, the science of forecasting, if, if we tend to then take the, the longer term view in all cases and say, well, we don't have enough data for our forecast model. The real peril that we find ourselves in is one that the public has found themselves in recently with, uh, for example, more of this anti-science, anti-vaccination groundswell, which is to say, well, if, if science says we don't have enough information, we can't quite give you that answer, we've got an 80% confidence level that X, Y, or Z will happen. The public has a very short fuse uh, and a very short attention span for things like that. They want to hear hard answers. They want to hear that the cure is going to be this or that. They want to hear that this or that will happen. And, you know, when, when real scientists and real statisticians come to the table and they say there's a likely probability of 40% that the following may occur. And that really just doesn't seem tangible enough for the general public. They don't really know what that means in context. And it's very hard for people to grasp something so abstract. So I think the more that the scientific models retreat into um, deeper and deeper levels of probability, it becomes harder for people to understand them, let alone buy into them. And that puts the future of forecasting at risk uh, because then people will tend to take these examples like Brexit, like the presidential election, like the Super Bowl and say, well, forecasting doesn't work anyway. And all they give me is a percent chance and they seem to be wrong all the time, which of course we know isn't true, but there are certainly some big flagship examples now. And so what we don't want to have happen is the public starts to lose their faith in good science, good forecasting probability methods and say they just don't work because then all we're left with is gut feel and opinion and anecdote. And that's, that's never the best choice of action. So now that we've, uh, you know, bashed forecasting, maybe we could flip it around to some of the uh, good practices of forecasting. And you have certainly advocated forecasting. And I guess the thing that really drove me to want to do this series with you, Ben, is forecasting is not something that I see in my compliance world. Uh, it is, it's done more uh, in your compliance world of pharma and healthcare. So um, kind of using uh, that as a backdrop, are there two or three or four good practices that uh, you could suggest? Uh, let me just throw out uh, a couple of uh, counterfactualizations or uh, the, the basic maxim that changes the constant and prepare for change. So with that, what would you suggest are some, some good practices people in uh, other types of compliance might want to utilize in forecasting? Yeah, those are both great terms. Um, certainly counterfactualizing the ability to create sound um, opposing viewpoints as to what might happen and then start to weight them. To realize, as the philosopher Heraclitus said, change is the only constant. 
Um, you know, the future is ever changing, of course. Otherwise, tomorrow would be just like today. Next year would be just like tomorrow. And we would never have to do any sort of planning or adapting to anything. And that's just not the way it is. So I think ultimately what we're left with is giving ourselves the freedom to say we don't know what the future will hold. But if we're going to do forecasting properly, what we should do is have a clear-eyed view of things that may go wrong and start to list them out. And in a lot of cases, um, we can come up with a vast majority of, of alternative courses of action that if we choose to take one path versus another, um, we'd be more likely to be successful. And, you know, sometimes there are the unknown unknowns, as uh, former Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld would have said. You know, these are the things that we just can't even put into our forecasting model because we don't know. But again, you know, if we think about 80-20 rule, the Pareto principle, in a vast majority of cases, uh, the short to medium term prospectus for a lot of what's happening with external and market forces are things that are within our purview. So, um, you know, there's not such a dramatic change in terms of what social media will be doing in the next three months, six months, 12 months, um, what the stock markets will be doing for, uh, for certain slices and in industries. I think, you know, the more that we're able to conceptualize the stuff that may pose risks to us and start to, to quantify those or attempt to quantify those, we can really put ourselves into a much better position to be prepared and to adapt our plans for the future. Um, you know, another one I think that I would put in there is um, Eisenhower's quote that the plan is nothing and planning is everything. So it's really not about necessarily the map at the end of the planning process. It's about the planning process itself, which involves smart people coming together, thinking about potential alternatives and outcomes that could adversely affect the business. Um, and then being, um, I guess, trusting enough in each other's judgment to say, if we think as a team, one of these outcomes is more likely than another, and there's the potential for um, abject failure or some sort of, sort of other adverse business response to one of these, we really need to make sure that this is in the model. We really need to, to allocate budget uh, to either offset it or fix it once it's happened and not leave things to chance. We probably should have uh, said this in the introduction, but one of the things that uh, has been made clear to me in my research on this topic and, and working with you is that forecasting does not stand alone. It stands in a continuum or process of your overall risk management strategy. So we're going to take a look at some of the other tools that you can utilize uh, in addition to forecasting. Um, but the, uh, uh, the work of a forecaster is the starting point in this process, or at least this journey. And the uh, processes and techniques that uh, you've articulated, I think, give people a, a very good start. Uh, unfortunately, Ben, we're uh, at the end of our time. But uh, perhaps in the next uh, episode, we could take a look at uh, the next couple of steps in the process, which are risk assessments and then risk-based monitoring. So I'd like to thank you for taking the time to visit with me today, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks, Tom. It's my pleasure. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you'd like more information on 
forecasting and the risk management process, please check out the FCPA Compliance and Ethics blog. Also, if you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate us as it will help our rankings and help get the word out about the FCPA Compliance Report. Finally, if you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to the FCPA Compliance Report. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.